Well, Sam just told you so many nice things about me that I feel duty-bound out of the gate uh, to temper that a little bit. You know that phrase, subvert the dominant paradigm? I know how, like, you go, to, you go talk, to, talk to a journalist, and they're really, really smart. And you say, here's what I think is going on. And they say, well, it's completely the opposite, you know? Uh, so I just want to kind of compliment um, what Sam has just, just, just uh, kindly uh, uh, uttered about the incredible legacy, which is true, that Mike uh, uh, created with Faith Angle and what Jenny is continuing to build, uh, but, but what, what we get to do uh, by a true story, okay? So 10 years ago, uh, just about exactly to this weekend, I remember feeling stuck and unsure and honestly just plain scared. After a steady job of about five years in government consulting, uh, one of the contracts at the Department of Health and Human Services dried up, and I got tossed off the bus. We had a Capitol Hill row house, Rebecca was expecting our second child, and I didn't have a plan. So I cranked up what the monks sometimes call aura at labora, to work and to pray. For three months, I tried something every day, sending a resume, looking at job lists. I also rode my bicycle back and forth to Mount Vernon, talking to God out there on the bike. In time, I applied for a dream job at one of the think tanks that Sam just told you about. And I begged God, gutturally, I begged him to give it to me. He didn't, or at least he didn't open the first door. But after a month or so, a second opportunity at that same think tank did emerge. And I got to go and to link together its compelling message with Christian colleges like Covenant College, where Jenny went and I went and Mike went, and a bunch of us have been to a variety of Christian colleges around the country. When I got that job, somehow things felt raw, opportune, and amazing, really. I stayed three years. I worked my guts out. While in between jobs, I felt bereft. When I got the one I really believed in, I felt filled to the brim. Work, especially work in Washington, can be a form of identity, can it? Probably a little too much. It holds unique power over us, particularly in this city, right? It can define us. And that may also be true in Los Angeles, in New York City, in Silicon Valley, but it's not true everywhere, not by a long shot. We recently spent several years in the Midwest where work plain and simple is viewed as something you do to support your family. One rock star says he always thought of a job as a thing you do where you, don't, you do what you don't really like for eight hours a day, nine hours a day, five or six days a week, to give you money to do on the weekend what you do like. If that's kind of a demoralizing view, what should the church at work look like? Well, we're reminded today in the gospel reading to store up treasures in heaven, but also about the connections between the resurrection of Christ and our work in the world. If I do my job this morning, you'll leave with at least one new thought about looking down, not just looking up, on the ladder at work, with a sense of Sunday's recurring connection to Monday, and maybe with a fresh perspective about the power and purpose of a group, which is essential to human flourishing, both in our work and in the church. Now, I'd venture to guess that if some of us are to pray about work, we typically focus mostly on meeting the challenges or the problems of the day. But what if we could see the office as a place of opportunity to live the kingdom life? 
Is work itself a place worth bringing the Lord into? What if in the morning, in advance of the work day, as we bring the day ahead before the Lord, we prayed with the idea of work as a place to see Him genuinely at work, all the while keeping in our minds the images of our colleagues or collaborators we might come into contact with that day? Well, if the church in Corinth, Paul preaching to, had perhaps too low of a view of work, in D.C. we have the opposite problem. We easily make work here into an idol. Here's how Carolyn Chen, the professor at UC Berkeley and the author of the new book, Work, Pray, Code, puts it after surveying a bevy of Silicon Valley tech firms. Work, she says, is today replacing, and in some cases, even taking the form of religion among many of America's professionals. People say over and over that their careers are spiritual journeys, that their work is a calling. I saw a social ecosystem where workplaces have taken on the institutional functions of religion, fulfilling employees' social and spiritual needs for identity, belonging, meaning, purpose, even transcendence. But the gospel of work is thin gruel, an ethically empty solution to meet our essential need for belonging and meaning. It's starving us as individuals and communities. Worshiping work is hollowing out our faith communities. And in turn, it's also weakening our democracy since well-paid professionals, often involved in democratic life in the past, tend to check out. Sometimes our view of work gets out of whack because that's what's in the air, because everyone around us has a view of work that's out of whack. But we are sometimes prone to make theological mistakes, too, when it comes to thinking about the mission of God and how that relates to our own core work. So, for example, how do we compare the aroma of Sunday worship, this, with the aroma of Monday work? Well, I know I'm prone sometimes to creating divides, sometimes thinking, thinking of work, uh, seeing work as a curse like it stems from the fall in Genesis 3.18 rather than from the creation order, from what God says in Genesis 1.28. Or as, as part of a sacred-secular split. God's realm is the sacred, but lobbying and the hill and my work profane. But Scripture doesn't create these artificial distinctions. This world really is our Father's world, just like the hymn says. And as we've heard preached many times here at TFCA, work flows from the cultural mandate. It reflects God the creator, three persons working together. It's a larger point, but scripture doesn't tell a story of fall redemption. Scripture tells us four chapter story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And our God-given work fits into that larger backdrop. This Labor Day weekend, we might ask, does the gathered church primarily prepare us for quiet times with the Lord, for spiritual restoration with our maker, or for, or, for, or, or for service in the world? Is the goal of our worship primarily Sunday, in other words, or Monday? Of course, the answer is yes. Worship isn't a means to an end. It is what we're ultimately made for. But five or six days a week, whether paid or unpaid, we're equally made for fruitful work, in the world. Consider how our service ends every Sunday. Let us go forth into the world in the name of Christ. The fitting next step of our worship to Almighty God is commissioning 
to scatter into the world as lights, as servants, as prophets and priests and kings, representing the Lord in all we do. In turn, that makes it what one Kansas City pastor calls spiritual malpractice, to gaze only at Sunday and the life of the Spirit and not at Monday and the vocational work God's given us to do. God wants his world to be teeming with life, its beauty and inherent potentialities waiting to be drawn out from technology to politics, from space travel to lawnmowers, from farming to intelligence and cooking and more. And having made us in his image, God invites us to look for that order and design wherever we are. In seeing the beauty of a bird on a walk, in a complex challenge at the office, or even when things are tragic, when we lose a grant, when we don't get promoted, or when we suffer another setback. The question is always, huh, I wonder what you're doing here, Lord. To know him over a life is to trust his long-term faithfulness, even when it gets tough in the interim. But what about this pattern of Sunday recurringly leading into Monday? Well, week after week, the seven-day order of creation repeats itself, following the example of the divine creator who himself rested too. We see monthly cycles underway in the moon or in fertility cycles. We see an annual cycle woven into the trajectory of the planets, Earth orbiting around the sun. But the introduction of a seven-day week is a gift directly from the creator working God. Week after week, we get to stitch together the rest, worship, and strength of Sunday with the calling and labor of the work week. We get to practice, maybe 70 years or 80 if we have the strength, as today's psalm says. But how? How do we do it? Well, let's look for a moment at the exultant verses of 1 Corinthians 15. I think it's page 962 in your pew Bible. Jenny just read it. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That passage brings chills, and we often hear it assuring brokenhearted families at a funeral. Paul hangs the whole package, his entire admonition to the church at Corinth on Christ's resurrection. If Jesus Christ isn't actually raised from the dead, all our preaching is in vain. God the Father took his humble end, his radical self-emptying act of death on a tree, and exalted him. It's exquisite. And yet, look where he goes next. Instead of quitting, Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Growing up, that could have been a plaque on my grandparents' wall. Do your duty, stand your post, Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Yet this Monday admonition, if you will, follows squarely on the heels of Sunday glory. Think of the penultimate verse of the hallelujah chorus that we might hear at the the Messiah at Christmas time. 
Think of, think of Brian and the band playing your favorite worship song with people in the congregation that you know and that you love, and it's great to worship. And to that moment, exactly, Paul says, be steadfast. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. In the heart of the text, we're supposed to feel this worship to work connection. David Garland says the Corinthians wrestled with an inherent polarity between the earthly and heavenly spheres. That the church in Corinth, as we said earlier, had a low view of work, but for us, the opposite problem. But Paul doesn't let either of those aberrations go. He inextricably links the heavenly doxology of Christ's exalted place to our down-to-earth responsibilities. In that juncture of verses 57 and 58, the completed work of the risen Jesus enables that which is earthly to become fit for heavenly existence. Another theologian compares what God does to make faithful work somehow last as purifying or undergoing a refining fire. In Christ, what was once corrupted is transformed into perfected work. More like a car that's been in a horrible accident, but grafted into Christ the Redeemer, our labors somehow get unbent, hammered out, rebuffed, made new. The invitation and promise is future, but also present. Paul says in verse 58 that our labor today in the Lord isn't in vain. Somehow it lasts going forward into the new earth. Amy Sherman says our work isn't the final thing in all its fullness, but it is nonetheless a foretaste of the new heavens and new earth. Remember she says those little pink spoons at Baskin Robbins where you get a sample in advance of the, of the scoop? Our work, she says, is like that. In good faith, the sample spoon isn't disconnected from the future scoop. Someday we'll see its fulfillment in the new earth. Why does Paul situate this promise in the glory of Christ's resurrection, saying, in the Lord your labor is not in vain? Because somehow our work in the world, done in faith, done in Christ, endures. But wait, wait, wait just a second. This is all very glorious, but what if someone who's hearing this right now uh, or someone we know is in a horrible spot at work? What if you're between jobs if your work just isn't working right now? What if most of your creative energy is going toward making a change? Or if you're tired and you can't appreciate this glorious vision Paul sets forth? Well, other parts of the Bible speak differently about the nature of work. The writer of Ecclesiastes, for example, speaks of its futility, its utter frustration at times. Like the raw honesty of the Psalms, this late in life work despondency really says, says this. I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. Who can toil? Who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I've gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. Ugh. Hopefully, you've never felt that kind of work despondency. But for all of us at times, the thorns and thistles and sweat upon the brow can set in. 
And in those times, other promises of scripture bring us through that the Lord is present in suffering, that he works through his people and through his church. You know, when I look back on losing my job and feeling blindsided with a young family 10 years ago, I honestly remember feeling rotten about everything. But in retrospect, it's God who is at work, even in that, moving me from a place of safety to a place of risk and more responsibility. Over, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer describes work uncertainty and transition. And yet it can bring truer, richer, more honest dependence on the Lord. It can humble us. For me, my wife's and my prayer life deepened. I experienced a new form of brokenness. We grew closer. Relationships with the people of God also became deeper too in a variety of ways. Short-term meaninglessness is never the final end of the story. Now, here at False Church Anglican, Pastor Isaiah has a boatload of us in small groups. But how's this ongoing work renewal sort itself out? Well, I've got an analogy for you. Uh, can I ask, are there, are there any cyclists who are here? So this is, this is great. The last service had three. We have 12. Uh, 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 well, if you're, if you're a cyclist, keep quiet, okay, you guys? Uh, what's the, what's, here's the question. What's the great enemy of the cyclist? Drivers. Drivers, cars uh, uh, in the road, tax on the path. Maybe uh, runners with AirPods can't hear you coming. They're gonna turn around on you. Uh, here's the answer. The wind. Cyclists go to unbelievable lengths to cheat the wind. They use lycra that fits like skin. They wear helmets that look like bullets. They take on these crazy positions and ever-changing bike technology, funky frames, wheels, aerodynamic spokes. The problem is, the faster you go as an individual, the more the wind pushes back. Soon enough, cyclists learn that there's one thing far more valuable than any clothing or helmet or technology you might deploy, and that's riding in a group. And look, a few familiar faces. If you're, if you're one of the 12, one of the 12, September 17th is the next Falls Church Anglican monthly cycling ride. Come on out. Uh, in a group, we normally call it a pack or a peloton, we can ride for hours and cover distances at speeds that are simply impossible no matter how much one person pedals alone. With six cyclists, like in this picture, each cyclist can methodically take turns confronting the wind up front, which serves the team. But for 83% of the time, five of the six of us are reserving energy. That's the power of the group. So here's my case. I think that's how it works at church and in the office too. Work solo, pedal in an isolated cubicle from nine to six to make it to the weekend, it's a tough way to flourish. Sometimes, of course, we're called to places that are hard, no question. But even if you give all your icky earned money to Christian causes, it's compromising. And the higher you climb, often the more isolating it gets, even if the money or prestige makes those 70 hour work weeks feel worth it. In my own work with journalists, I've been surprised at how much most of the better columnists and editors and national reporters talk with each other. I always thought of journalism as a kind of quiet solo activity, like Aaron Brockovich, but quite the opposite. I'm not competent to know 
that this holds for every sector. But after working, as Sam said, 16 of our last 24 years in DC, it seems to me that if you choose to work in isolation, if you work solipsistically, the winds of Washington will eventually get you. Like the guy in the Lycra suit or the bullet helmet, you can try arriving to the office an hour earlier than your colleagues or looking up the detailed habits of your competitors. But riding solo doesn't compare to the alternative, to the community of the pack. We need the community of the pack to really flourish, to not end up like the writer of Ecclesiastes, uncertain whether successors will be wise or foolish. Perhaps like me, you've tasted the pain of isolation or unemployment, or experienced hurt or shame even, when one part of your life isn't what you prayed it would be. We really do learn from seasons of following Jesus in the rich company of friends, and from seasons of struggling or going it alone. And if life in DC can be windy, this church has a myriad number of ways in which you can put your gifts to work. I think we'll hear more about some of those opportunities next week, and I'd urge you not to keep them on the shelf. DC's really windy. You know what someone once called the definition of listening in Washington? Waiting your turn to speak. Whether, whether it's a friend or a colleague in a cutthroat quest for political power, an almost all-consuming yearning for more money or a promotion, getting a bitter, bigger Twitter following, a quiet tendency that Nietzsche talks about, about dominating every room, our town really does have unique idols, and we all know this. But just like in bicycle riding, those headwinds can't be overcome alone. If you're choosing whether to put your own talents to work in the church, it can be tempting to assume it's an economy of scarcity. We've got limited time, so if I join a TFCA ministry, I won't have time for that relationship or that work certification I've been postponing. But whether at church or in the workplace, God really does have this amazing way of giving us the strength we need to do what he's called us to. In God's economy, it's always an economy of abundance, not of scarcity. Could our church further equip saints at work Maybe so. Perhaps we could stay open to that. Maybe current fellowship groups or Bible studies amongst friends could also function as informal professional guilds, lawyers pushing each other toward a more truly biblical justice, moms and dads with young children helping each other better our parenting practices, hill staffers in the city of man supporting each other with truer humility, the kind of befitting of the city of God, and so on. In small groups, at grief share, in marriages, in men's and women's ministries, what might it look like to truly ask God's help not only to advance his kingdom in the church, but also in the work we're called to do throughout the week? Well, that's what Moses prays for in Psalm 90. And his prayer isn't individualist, it's communal. Let the favor of the Lord rest upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. 40 years of wandering in the desert, and Moses asks Yahweh, establish, yes, establish the work of our hands. As with Paul's invocation in 1 Corinthians 15, this commissioning aims at something God always wanted, justice and mercy, love and shalom in God's world. Ultimately, that comes through Jesus Christ. But even 13 centuries earlier, Moses asks God to fortify our labor against the power of death that forces its way onto created life, such that even little actions 
things that can seem meaningless. For us, maybe emptying the trash, washing the dishes, schlepping to the grocery store, paying bills, can become meaningful. If sin and grace are in a cosmic battle, Moses asks for grace. And in that sense, rightly offered to God, work can itself become a form of prayer. Establish the work of our hands. When our hearts are tender, taking this view of work can stun us. Pay attention to moments, wrote the recently departed Frederick Buechner, when unexpected tears may come to your eyes and what may trigger them. When God shows up at your workplace, however occasionally, however brightly, or however sublime, it can be a cause for the richest worship. How did the early church father Irenaeus put it? The glory of God is the human person fully alive. How does Sam put it? We're not ourselves by ourselves. If there's just one big point you take from this sermon, I hope it's that the winds of working in DC are best confronted in a pack, in a group. Christ calls us as the people of God, not in isolation, to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Not every church gathers brothers and sisters who are really moving all around town in the same direction, but this one does. Thanks be to God for that. So much about Falls Church is relational and sacrificial. It's like in the water system or something. And we learn at work and in ministry that the good stuff always takes sacrifice. A fellows program implicates host families and mentors and teachers and many of us. A vibrant women's ministry takes a lot of prayer, a lot of walking alongside before you get to setting up chairs at a retreat. Grief share actually means mourning together. Youth group today means navigating winds that none of us had to. Next Sunday night, I hope we'll hear about these and a food pantry and ESL and much, much more. At our best, the church helps her members flourish in our work for the life of the world so that we can model for others who don't yet know Christ why it's attractive to choose Jehovah as master rather than mammon as master. And while we are given real responsibility like this to work hard, to take turns pulling, if you will, in the group. Jesus, our champion, as it says in Hebrews 12, is always there, always taking on the hardest winds, pulling us through the choppy rain. Do you remember learning in school a long time ago that geese flying in a V formation save 71% of their energy by flying together? That power of the group is also at work in a vibrant church and in the church at work too. We take turns pulling and sharing burdens and bearing burdens. Over a lifetime, God tends to give us different roles, different seats on the bus. Sometimes it's being pruned so that you can generate better fruit with God seeing our future. Other times it's a season maybe at the top of the org chart with power to advance great good. Maybe most of the time, it's some place on the bus, a place to steadily serve, a place that matters to God, a place where his eye is yet upon us, just like the sparrow. One last cycling analogy. Did you know that in a cycling time trial, it's not the, the rider's first wheel, the first rider's first wheel, but the last rider's last wheel that stops the clock? Let me say that again. It's not the man in front of the line but the man at the back of the line that determines your score. 
That's so instructive, I think, because in Washington, it's unusually tempting to constantly be managing up, to want to climb the ladder. It's a good idea, of course, keeping your boss informed of your progress, but few people, very few people, spend real energy managing down, prioritizing those on your team with less power than you. Christian author Andy Crouch says that almost all of us have some earned power where we work. The question is, how do we use it? Andy argues that what we all really want deep down is vocational work that combines authority and vulnerability. If you're interested, Andy says a lot more in his wonderful little book, uh, Strong and Weak. Growing up in poverty means you live your life in quadrant two. If you've got a Pentagon or DOD contract, but you don't unfortunately have the authority to actually advance the ball, that's quadrant three. But even looking quickly at this chart, if you think of authority as often increasing with hard work and dedication over the years, the vulnerability argument is really interesting. In short, he says, we're, we're more alive at work when there's some risk involved, when your idea could fail, when you're vulnerable to get to do something hard. Your labor is also not in vain when you can work in healthy relationship with your colleagues to stretch and sweat and excel together. Moving around these quadrants takes time and counsel and the fear, the fear favor of the Lord, fear of the Lord too, and uh, since there are all kinds of ways to suffer and withdraw or feel, feel exploited at work, it can go many ways within that rubric. But with an impulse toward excellence and toward serving one another, toward managing down, toward honoring junior colleagues by sometimes spending some of your earned capital on them, God can and will do many things for his own glory through our work. And if the broader DC workforce doesn't do this, your sacrifice may stand out as a beautiful gift, like a signpost pointing to another kingdom. How does Monday better inform, I'm sorry, how does Sunday better inform our Monday? Instead of bemoaning the power you don't have, use the power you do have for Christ and for his kingdom and for others on the team. I'd leave you with just two images. First, that idea of a ladder and the tendency we all have to look up, to excel, to work for our own promotion. Every once in a while, look down. Keep an eye on what Jesus might be doing down there and help your colleagues uh, with the spirit of Christ. Second, a bicycle. Gotta stick with the group. Taking entrepreneurial risk is far easier when you're riding in a pack. It's good to take entrepreneurial risk and God could use our creativity in starting maybe something small to help others flourish too. That could look all, like all kinds of things and maybe next weekend we'll, we'll, we'll get a chance to think more about them. We don't know just what challenges are ahead in the next 10, 20, or 30 years. But cultivating better vocational, relational capital helps us bloom where we're planted. We can pay better attention to the weakest rider and just like Jesus, we can leave the 99 for the one. When we do our work wholeheartedly and do it for the glory of God, while we should manage up, that isn't the only thing. In the spirit of service, we can also give our lives away by managing down. This morning, for an hour or two, as a church, we're gathered 
But for the vast majority of the week, TFCA is scattered, sent out in the work, in, in, into the world after, to do the work after Sam or John or Isaiah or Kathleen or Steve says, let us go forth into the world. And those other days of the week, God's refining us. He's chiseling us. He's got us. Sometimes he even invites us to be the one to come alongside a wayward brother or sister, even a colleague in love, to challenge them and encourage them and pull them back toward the way. Those opportunities are liquid gold. They flow from the church on Sunday into Monday. And as every new week dawns, we get to practice. C.S. Lewis once said, aim for heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Christ's resurrection, Paul tells us, turned the present age upside down. So too, our labor in the Lord can point to this truth. That truly, our work is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, our days are as a vapor, like a fleeting shadow. Help us heed your call while there is yet time. This Sunday, restore us, make right our way of doing work tomorrow and always as only you can. Advance your kingdom in your world, that even in places where we steward power, we may taste and see your reign anew. Establish the work of our hands for the sake of your dear son, in whose name we pray. Amen.